Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books and Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Reagan Gillum, a host on the channel, and today I'm talking to Dr. Bridget Franco. She's the founder and organizer of the Synagogia website. Synagogia is an open access website devoted to the teaching and study of Latin American cinemas. Dr. Franco, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Reagan. Excited to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk with you about the website. Today we're in for a treat because although this is the New Books Network, we're going to be talking about a website, but it is a website with so much rich material about Latin American cinema. And so I wondered if you could begin by talking about yourself. Dr. Bridget Franco, you're an associate professor of Spanish at the College of the Holy Cross in Worcester, Massachusetts. Can you tell us about yourself and how you came to research and teach Spanish and Latin American film? Yes, definitely. And thanks for noticing that, indeed, this is a digital humanities web uh, project, not a a book in the conventional sense. So I appreciate you considering this as a a digital text, which is kind of how I envision the project, too. Um, But to answer your question, yes, I'm I'm an associate professor of Spanish in the Spanish department, but also a faculty member of the Latin American, Latinx, and Caribbean Studies program here at Holy Cross. And within my department, and the, and the broader Latin American, Latinx, Caribbean studies program, I teach classes in Spanish that range from intermediate language to more advanced content courses uh, that focus on Latin American culture, literature, film, and even a course that uh, is called filmmaking in Spanish, where my students get to create bilingual short films or hype videos in collaboration with a local uh, community partner that's looking for some content either in Spanish or or English-Spanish bilingual way. Um, So that's a little bit about where I am presently uh, in terms of how I I ended up here. Um, That's a longer story. I'll try to keep it short. Um, but I think if I had to trace my academic journey, it would have to go back to uh, a pivotal moment in my life when I was 17 years old. And I decided, um, or, or perhaps more accurately, I was strongly encouraged by a guidance counselor and my parents to leave the United States and go live and study my senior year of high school abroad in Spain. And, uh, and that year was, um, you know, it was uh, the most challenging, uh, difficult frustrating, enriching, and, and meaningful experience of my life. Uh, and I think anybody who, who goes to another country and immerses themselves for a long period of time in a language that is not their native tongue, uh, it probably experiences much of the same things that I did, which was you know culture shock, real deep loneliness, some fear, confusion, a lot of anxiety. Um, but eventually I also experienced a lot of acceptance, uh, friendship, and some deep human connections that that just kind of transcended linguistic differences uh, and made me comfortable enough to immerse myself in the language and ultimately achieve a, a, a pretty high level of fluency by the end of the year. And, and without that year, I don't think I would be sitting here talking to you, <laughs> and I definitely wouldn't have done the project that I've, that I've done. Um, so that's, you know, that's probably where it all started. And in the, in the years since, um, I've, I've lived in Rhode Island, Indiana. I went back to Spain for another year in college. I lived in Northern and Southern California, now Massachusetts. 
And I've worked in a variety of different jobs, both in and outside the academia. So what I always tell my students is, you know, hopefully their their life won't be lineal, that there'll be lots of twists and turns along the way, definitely some bumps. But for me anyway, that's that's been, you know, the rich, the richest of the experience is in those moments when it's not so clear where you're headed or what what's in the plan for you. Um, and then just in terms of how I got to teach Spanish and Latin American film, um, eventually when I decided to go back to grad school after some, some time off from the academia, I, um, I ended up at UC uh, Irvine, University of California, Irvine, working on a PhD where I was focused on the figure of the, the mad person, the el loco or la loca, and how that figure, especially in Argentine and Chilean, uh, Chilean literature, from the dictatorship periods is a figure of resistance and in many ways a figure that can find its way around censorship and speak the truth to power. Um, and even though my dissertation was focused much uh, uh, exclusively on literature, I ended up finding this film uh, when I was doing my research uh, in, in the Stanford University archives. And the film was um, about a group of outcasts in Argentina the film is called uh, La Redada, and it's by Rolando Pardo. And I was just so taken by the film, and it just fit really well with what I was doing with the literary text that I asked my mentor if I could include it. And even though she wasn't a film studies person, she's like, sure, you know, throw it in there. And that was just the kind of the, the, the cheese, but that was like the beginning, that moment where I was like, oh, there's so much here. You know, I love literature, and I'll always love literature, but there's so much in that filmic text that was exciting to explore. Um, so when I came to Holy Cross, I was lucky to be given the freedom by my department and my colleagues to explore that and to go much deeper with film studies than I had done in my, in my PhD research. Um, yeah. And, 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 uh, I've been at Holy Cross for, for over a decade now. And while I started doing courses, um, focused on Southern Cone film, I, since the pandemic specifically, have really shifted my focus to look at more films more broadly in Latin America with um, indigenous and Afro-descendant representation and media makers specifically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is fascinating. And I liked how you talked about study abroad being so uh, important in your journey to what you study. And I always encourage students to study abroad. I didn't actually study abroad when I was in college, and I really regret that. But then obviously I did go abroad for grad school and I've spent much time in Brazil doing research. So I think it's really an important part of people's intellectual journey to do that if they have the, the you know, possibility and the capacity to do that. So Synagogia is really a wonderful resource, as I said earlier, for teaching and research on Latin American cinema. I'm going to just say the website right now, and then I'll also put it in the show notes, but listeners can find Synagogia at synagogia.omika.net. That's C-I-N-E-G-O-G-I-A dot omika, O-M-E-K-A dot net. And like I said, I'll put that in the show notes as well. But I wondered if you could explain uh, what Synagogia is and what the name Synagogia means. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for for, for mentioning the website. Um, the the term itself is is a play on the Spanish words for for film, cine, cinema, and pedagogy. Right, the the pedagogia part of it, um, and uh, it's it's bilingual uh, Spanish English. 
with the caveat that in the future, I'd like to make it trilingual because obviously Portuguese plays a huge part in Latin American cinema with Brazil. Um, but for now, it's bilingual. Those are our, our linguistic limitations at the current moment. And it was really created in response to you know, the need that I felt and heard from colleagues for a collaborative pedagogical space for people and especially instructors and students who are engaged with Latin American and Latinx film and media studies. Um, you know, over the, over, you know, the course of, of, of these years that I've been teaching Latin American film, I've, I've noticed that there are so many different curricular uh, approaches different disciplines that people are teaching Latin American film in, different languages of instruction, different theoretical frameworks. And on top of that, I think that instructors also grapple with the, the different varying levels of uh, film analysis background and even uh, with their students, how much they know about Latin American history and culture. So there are so many different ways in to Latin American film. And part of this project was just my my interest in and my curiosity on what are other people doing? How are other people teaching this? Um, and and what can I learn from what they're doing? And also what films are they teaching? Because, you know, there's so, there's, there, there are thousands of Latin American films uh, and making that curatorial choice is, is a powerful tool that we have as instructors when we're making the choice to include, you know, I don't know, 10 to 20 films in one semester, you are deciding the, 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 the image of Latin America that you are letting students see. And that's a real privilege and a responsibility that, um, that I've, that I've always taken seriously, but in the past, you know, several years I've been asking myself even more questions about what kinds of things am I choosing and why. Um, so the the website itself is um, what I call a modular project. There are different collections or modules um, that range from, range from syllabi to film guides. Um, there's There are now thematic modules, uh, one based on, focused on indigenous uh, representation and and also indigenous filmmaking. The other on Afro-descendant filmic representation. Uh, there's a searchable uh, and and filterable film database. Um, there's a bilingual uh, cinematographic glossary and different resources for creating uh, video essays and um, and videographic scholarship. Um, so that's and in terms of who's using the site from our from our data our our. Google Analytics data. Uh, the last time I checked a couple days ago, we had approximately about 18,000 users who have visited the site since we debuted in 2016, with an average of about 550 monthly visitors over the past two years. Um, it's about 50-50 in terms of where our users are coming from. 50% uh, are from the U.S., but then the other, uh, about 50% of web traffic is originating in other countries, including uh, countries such as Mexico, Argentina, Brazil, and then also uh, Spain, the UK, uh, and Canada. Yeah, that's great. Um, that's really uh, interesting when you you talked about um, uh, founding the the website in response to colleagues and you know really creating this this central resource for people to be able to access and and learn more about the breadth and depth of Latin American films. I wondered if you could um, talk more about 
did, did you want to talk more about how you came to found Synagogia? And this could even be like practicalities of how you, um, just how you, how you began the project. Um, I can imagine that people who are themselves embarking on a digital humanities project would, would love to hear about, you know, anything you can share about the founding of the, of the project. Yes, I, I would love to share that because I myself found myself in a in a vacuum and an empty space and and was continually questioning what am I doing? Is this does this even make sense? Is this going to count for anything? Um, because you know, digital humanities is not a traditional book publication or even a peer reviewed article. So um, I had a lot of doubt about it, and I will say that um, the process of doing this project has also shown me that there are alternative ways to kind of doing what you want to do in academia and figuring out how you are explaining and how your colleagues are also measuring uh, the project. So for me, um, the, while the while the website debuted in 2016, the, uh, the, the beginning of it dates back to 2014, um, after I did a presentation at the Latin American Studies Association conference about teaching Latin American film and some of the other projects I was working on. Uh, somebody in the audience who was also part of the film studies section of that of LASA contacted me and said, hey, we'd love for you to um, help us create kind of a web portal, like a clearinghouse for um, Latin American film studies resources. And that was really more of a traditional, like, let's just have a, you know, a bunch of links on a page about uh, helpful resources for teaching Latin American cinema. And they wanted to bring it under the auspices of the official LASA website. Um, And so I thought, oh, that's interesting. So there's interest out there. And that was kind of the the first step in the direction of, well, I know I can do this because I have myself some digital humanities training and technical skills. Um, And if there's interest out there, then maybe this will work. And so two years later, I I brought together colleagues in the field for a workshop um, on tools and methods for teaching Latin American cinema at the Congress, at the LASA Congress. And that workshop was instrumental because we realized just how many different approaches and strategies and and research agendas were at play in the field. And so it was clear that if we could get some buy-in from our colleagues and, and willingness to share some of these teaching materials, that we would have a very rich um, collection of how, how this topic is being, is being taught in our, in our courses. And in the open discussion part of the, of the presentation, the audience um, was very seemed to be very enthusiastic about it, and many people recognized that there there were really very few even print publications that brought together these resources, um, and so there was a real need for it. And uh, and and we also noted that while there are some fantastic already existing national filmography databases that originate in the region. So the Cinematecas, right, the film archives, many countries have their own national archives. Um, And while those were useful for country-specific studies, we didn't have a database that could help facilitate a search that was more transnational uh, or even subject-based. Um, if you were looking to, say, teach a course on gender and Latin American cinema, you weren't going to be able to get that out of a, the Mexican uh, Filmoteca, for example. 
Uh, and so those uh, most of the people on that panel in 2016 formed the original editorial board with me. And and while I was doing the technical development with a uh, with a student research associate over the summer, they were really helpful because I was able to make sure that I was checking in with them about. Um, what kind of terms we were using, what were the categories, what were we going to do when uh, the so-called, you know, the gold standard of digital humanities, the Dublin core, when they didn't have the terms that we wanted to use, um, or they they were using maybe perhaps problematic terms that it, for Latin American studies didn't quite fit. So um, they were very helpful in, in helping me to edit the list of metadata categories uh, that we were that we were trying to develop, and re- and remembering that our audience, our target audience, were really people who were going to be looking for these materials either in Spanish or English, and that there would be certain terms they'd be looking for, and that didn't necessarily align with what the Dublin Core or the the Library of Congress headings were putting out as you know the official the official terminology. Um, and so that summer was, that was, you know, the focus was on the website, getting it out there. We ended up picking Omica, which I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce it. I thought I pronounce it, but I've heard people say Omeka también, uh, as well. But anyhow, I, I chose that software, um, because it's used by archivists, librarians, uh, museums use it to build digital collections. And I kind of always thought of Synagogia as a curated collection space, uh, more than anything. And there may come a day when we outlive uh, or we outgrow Omika, but for now it works pretty well uh, for what for what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Great. So that is fascinating. I like doing these interviews because I hear all of the thought that went into uh, what people do, the kind of projects that people are putting together. And when you visit the website, one you know comes to the website, they see the the categories, the films. Um, but they wouldn't know all of the thought and consideration that went into uh, what films are, are chosen and the, the terms that you're using that you, you just described, um, how you, you know, how you came to, to develop these categories. And, and in talking about thinking, I guess, I wanted to talk a little bit about your work that you've done on um, film in Latin America, and you've published different papers and articles on Latin American cinema. And you, you mentioned a little bit about your dissertation um, on Latin American cinema, but um, but you're also, of course, an expert on Latin American cinema where you've published films in Chile um, on the democratic transition, films in Argentina, and then on indigenous cinema, which you talked about is a um, it's like a ongoing and, and newer project. And so I was, you know, looked at your papers and I saw that in one paper called My Camera is Not a Weapon, you examine a film called Wakolda in relationship to indigenous representation. And I thought it was interesting that this film was also about Nazi fugitives in Argentina. And so I wondered if you could um, share with us a little bit about the research and arguments that you're, that you're doing about Latin American films. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. That so that article uh, was published in 2020, but I had been working on it earlier, you know, for years earlier, and it's basically um, the analyzing Lucia Puenzo's film Wakolda, uh, which came out in 2013 and was uh, inspired by or based on her 2011 short novela of the same name, and I was I think that paper, you know, in many ways reflects 
my training as a literary and filmic person because I was trying to see some of the differences between what she was doing in the literary text and then how that translated or not onto the film. And what I noticed was that her screen adaptation uh, of a very, very nuanced and complex literary text uh, in my in my mind, negatively impacted the representation of indigenous subjects uh, because it was it it basically ignored all the nuanced, really interesting ways she talked about the history of Argentina, the history that dating back to the ni- the late nineteenth century genocide um, known as the conquest of the desert, and all and and she in her in her novela she linked that history to Argentina's. Um, uh, history of harboring Nazi fugitives uh, in the wake of World War II and the discourse of eugenics in the region. And she was bringing all these things together in really interesting ways in the novela. But then in the film, uh, she she opted instead to make it a more of kind of a thriller genre. It was more of a historical fiction. And it was very much centering um, the, the Nazi fugitive uh, uh, Joseph uh, Mengele, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, Mengele, uh, who who actually was hidden in plain sight in Argentina um, for for many years, and so um, in many ways that that argument and that analysis is kind of pointing out what the film didn't do and how it continued to 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 contribute to the erasure of indigenous um, subjects in Argentine film and. And I'm grateful, actually, because one of the reviewers of that paper in an earlier version was kind of like, well, you know, why can't you point out what the what the film is doing well <laughs> instead of like what it's not doing? Um, but but the the publication of that paper, interestingly, coincided in 2020 with with um, with George Floyd, George Floyd murder and the, the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement. And and I started to see how can I kind of pivot away from noticing what films are, are not doing and what films can I find for my students, for myself, for my research that are amplifying the voices of indigenous subjects uh, in the region and also uh, Afro-descendant um, individuals and communities. And a, a lot of that pivot in in the summer of 2020, I'll, I'll attribute actually to my students, uh, many of whom were had gone home in in March of 2020, not knowing, you know, with the pandemic what was going to happen. And then by the time the summer rolled around, they were isolated at home. They had lost their summer jobs. And I kind of just said, hey, may, maybe, maybe they want to do something, you know, and we can do it virtually. And I reached out and a huge number of them, a huge for me, you know, 10, 10 or 12 of them um, immediately wrote back and said, yes, we want to do something. And when we got together over on Zoom and I asked them, well, what is it that you want to work on? Um, you know, what kind of films do you want to help me get up on Synagogia, either in the form of film guides or on the database? And um, a large percentage of the students said, we want to um, we want to we want to help expand the database to include more BIPOC representation, um, and I thought, fantastic, let's do that, and we did. And that summer, we just were able to really explode um, the film database uh, in a way that hadn't been we hadn't been able to do because I didn't have an, you know enough student researchers working on it. 
And in that process, I learned so much about films that I wasn't aware of um, that uh, that were not just with um, uh, with Afro descendant and indigenous uh, protagonists, but actually had indigenous and Afro-descendant filmmakers behind the camera. And I think that distinction is really important. Uh, it's important as when I teach these, these films because I think there's a huge difference between how those films are made in terms of the process, but then also a lot of the messaging too can be quite different. Um, so yeah, so we were, we were able to, um, you know, for me, I, I, the question started off about what was I doing in that particular paper, but I think it also gave me a point to jump off and see what else could I be doing with my research that isn't just noticing exclusions, but also um, celebrating and amplifying the places and the films where these voices are present and actively and, and with agency saying their piece. Um, uh, and, and part of that is the process, not just who's up on the, up on the silver screen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so important, um, what you talked about. And I think in talking about your students and, um, and their engagement with the, with the project that takes me to pedagogy and, you know, there are several pedagogical resources on the, um, on the website, on, on Synagogia. And, and you mentioned, I think a few earlier when you talked about what, when you described the, the website, but I was wondering if you wanted to talk about, uh, any pedagogical resources in particular that people can find on the website? Sure. Yeah. Uh, so definitely the syllabi are, are usually, if we look at, the, again, at the analytical data, uh, most people come to Synagogia looking in the, either the syllabi collection or um, the film database. So it seems to be educators who are looking for how, you know, how are other people teaching these things and how could I, how could I um, perhaps, you know, shift or, or, or present, you know, a different way of, of teaching the, the films. So with the syllabi, uh, we've got over 40 uh, at this point. And I, I kind of categorize them into five broad categories. So there are syllabi that focus on a particular nation, you know, Cuban film, for example, or um, contemporary Argentine film might be one. Uh, other courses are more kind of broad survey courses. Uh, so, uh, for example, Latin American cinema from like 1930 to the present day. Um, other colleagues uh, have contributed syllabi about world cinema. So looking at film in a more transnational way. Um other colleagues uh, do a thematic approach. So there's some really interesting syllabi on, uh, for example, children and adolescents in, uh, in Latin American film. Um, and, uh, and then other colleagues uh, are looking uh, in a more what I would consider maybe identity studies focus. Uh, so Latin American women filmmakers, in other words, who's making the film, not just what it's about. Um, and then in addition to uh, the, the syllabi, um, the film guide collection, I also think is really rich. We have over 150 film guides at this point, um, in, both in Spanish and in English. Uh, and the film guides have been developed in some cases by faculty, but also a growing number are developed by students who submit film guides using a particular template that encourages them to not just come up with, you know, yes or no questions or kind of plot summaries, but actually engage with the historical context of the film to engage with articles that have been written about these films already 
to think about particular film techniques that are interesting. Um, so that that for me is is uh, one of the components pedagogically that I'm really proud of uh, in the collection. And then the the, the biggest collection uh, in terms of teaching materials is the film database, which at this point we're now over 500 film entries. I think it's important to note that we are not trying to be exhaustive. That's that's beyond the scope of this um, project. And also, that's really where I feel like the, the National Cinematecas, you know, that's what they're doing. So why repeat that work? Um, but what we can do is, as we grow the database, provide a really rich environment for a for an instructor to come in and filter that data in a way that is is interesting either for their research or for their teaching so just to give you like a really uh, general example um, let's say you want to teach a course on gender in Latin American film you can go in there and in the advanced search function you can uh, restrict the subject heading to gender, and then you can filter by say, let's do time periods. You know, I'm, I want to look at just contemporary film, and then maybe you just want to look at a particular genre, like I want to look at horror or I want to look at uh, drama, and you're going to get a filmography with potential titles that you might not have thought about before. Um, and this this tool, I think, can be useful both to instructors as they build their. Uh, their new classes, but also students who are trying to maybe write a paper and they're like, well, I need to find a film that touches on this and it's from these particular countries. Um, and hopefully, again, this project as it grows will become more and more useful in that sense uh, for people as they're, as they're looking for these materials. Um, and I also think, again, this ties back to the work we've been doing really, really consciously since 2020, um, that uh, uh, many times uh, filmographies can become or can reflect a stereotypical or one-dimensional representations from the region. And part of what we're trying to do with our database is to give results from the database that are going to provide filmographies that are diverse, uh, both in uh, where the films are coming from, but also who is involved in the process. Um and, and I'm actually going to quote you because you have a really great quote in, um, in one of your publications about, you know, there's a demand for images of Black subjects that emphasize their agency, their multidimensionality, and the realities of life in a society structured by race. And I think, you know, in a very small way, Sinagogi is trying to help educators and students who are looking for representations that are not one-dimensional or stereotypical and to find films that are um, reflecting that complexity and that nuance that's so important, right, um, to help uh, move away from uh, the, the, the many years of stereotypical uh, representation of both Indigenous and Black uh, individuals from the region, in cinema specifically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you so much for, for citing me. And I can, I, I myself can attest to the usefulness of the of the website and the list of Afro-Latin and indigenous films. As someone who studies film, uh, black films in Brazil, I saw, you know, I learned about new films on, on the Synagogia website as well. So, and then in looking at expansively at indigenous films and really just the other films that are available on the website really has expanded my, uh, 
the the breadth of the of my knowledge of films in, in Latin America in general. And then the syllabi are so important, as you you mentioned earlier, where when I'm teaching a class for the very first time, one of the first things I do is look up syllabi from people who have previously taught the class. And I use that as a foundation to build my own syllabi and then, you know, innovate and, and include my own thinking. So I think that that's a, just such a valuable resource for people who want to teach uh, and include Latin American cinema in their classes. Um, I wanted to ask you how you include Latin American film in your classes. Um, I've personally had the pleasure of joining your classes through Zoom when you include the film uh, Bad Hair or Pelo Malo from Venezuela. And I've, I've met your, your brilliant students and I've seen, um, you know, their discussion of the film and how you, you know, facilitate their entry into, you know, into these films. And so I wondered if you could talk about how you include Latin American film in your classes, if you want to talk about a particular film you teach or a particular activity or assignment. Um, but if you could just share with us how you talk about uh, Latin American film. Sure. Yeah. Um... So I so the class you're referring to is, is one of my favorite classes, which is Latin, uh, you know kind of like an introduction to Latin American film. But uh, that class is taught in English as a as part of our first year seminar program at Holy Cross. And um, and again, since since Senegal here has really helped me think about the films that I'm selecting for my students, especially if you think about a first year student coming into college, and this may be their only exposure in their whole life to Latin American film. So I've had to really think carefully about what kind of images I'm selecting to share with them. Um, and one, uh, that, that particular course has gone through many different iterations. And currently it's a course where, um, I've, I've specifically selected, um, films that have Afro-descendant and indigenous representation centered uh, in them. And the kind of assignments that we're doing in that course uh, or and in other courses too that I teach on Latin American film, I think one assignment that I have found very useful uh, pedagogically is the film guide um, where students actually are creating a film guide for their peers as a tool to help them watch the film and then respond to questions as they're uh, preparing for our class discussion. And uh, as I was, I was, I'm actually writing a paper right now about uh, pedagogy and and film and teaching. And uh, one of the things I came across was some research about how uh, lecture, lecturing, which is the dominant mode of information delivery in U.S. higher education is actually one of the least effective teaching methods. And so in my classes, I step back as much as possible and try to bring in active learning tasks and uh, the kind of main elements of those active learning tasks are discussing, questioning, and peer teaching. And all of these have um, are, have been proven to show and result in higher retention rates, a deeper understanding of the material, and more collaborative learning environments. So the film guide, and specifically asking my students in pairs to develop a film guide and then use that for their discussion kind of hits on all those kind of pedagogically uh, high impact practices. Um, So that's been fantastic. And then the students who, you know, are are able to do that, I invite them to, if they want, to send those along to Synagogia and try to get them published on the site. So there are several different film guides up on Synagogia that my students have authored, which I think is something that as an undergraduate, we don't help our students with enough is 
you know, getting their stuff out there in the world uh, and, and sharing it because they're really very high quality, many of these. Um, and the other assignment that I've done, which has also takes more time than the film guide, are the video um, essays or the video ensayos. And uh, I've had some students who have just produced, uh, I'll, I'll give you one example uh, by a student who's, who's graduating this year. She put into dialogue, so a video ensayo is basically taking films and clipping them and then editing it together to reflect a certain argument or commentary. And usually they're accompanied with an, a text, uh, an author's text to explain what they were trying to do. And this one student put into dialogue, um, Excanul, which is the Guatemalan film by uh, Jairo Bustamante, and Cancion Sin Nombre, which is a more recent film by um, uh, Melina Leon, Peruvian film. And she was looking at how uh, in these films, how the 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 corporal, the body, uh, the bodily presence of these two females, despite um, some of their silences in the movies, when they were put together in her video ensayo, she was trying to show how there was so much solidarity, uh, and she actually produced this amazing solidarity visually, where the where the protagonists were looking at one another. Uh, on this on a split screen um, and just kind of hammered home this idea of, of, of kind of ancestral memory uh, across space and time and and geographically too in a really powerful way uh, so that takes a little bit more time I would say that kind of a project but well worth it and up on Senegal here we have instructions kind of scaffolded instructions on how you can get your students from a very basic understanding, perhaps, of film editing and digital editing to a, a final publication like that. Wow, that's really amazing. The students continually like blow me away with their with their insight and their analyses and how they put things together for me sometimes in ways that I would never, many times in ways that I would never see. So those are one of the some of the joys of teaching in a classroom. Um, whenever I come to your class too, the students always have different questions where they, you know, think, see things in the film that I, you know, didn't pay attention to or kind of glossed over and, you know, they really focus in on it. So that's, that's always so interesting to hear all of these different perspectives on this material. So you've uh, mentioned how you've been working on the website Synagogia for um, over several years and you're, you know, constantly doing kind of different things with it, different projects, um, adding different material to it, updating different things. And so I wondered um, what your current current initiatives and activities were with the with Synagogia. Um, what, are you, what, is, what are you working on now, I guess, or what are your plans for um, developing the site? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it is, and it's also one of the, the, both the frustrations and the joys of digital humanities is it's never finished because if you publish a book, you can just put it on the shelf and hopefully people, you know, take it off the shelf and read it, but you're done with it. And there's a, there's a satisfaction too with being like, I got it done, put it on the shelf. With these DH projects, it's always what's next and, uh, you know, and how can we make it better and expand it? So I would say, always ongoing. Um, we're always, and I work with some undergraduate research associates here at Holy Cross who are helping me always expand um, the database. So that's like probably the number one focus that's always there. Um, but in terms of where the focus is, that changes. And a lot of times I ask my research associates, you know, what do you want to do? What kind of films do you want to 
put in the database that we don't have. So that there's some buy-in there too. So it's not just me or the editorial board telling the students, you know, we need to do these particular films. So um, in, in the case of my current student, she's very interested in uh, Cine Indígena, so Indigenous filmmaking. So she's been going to um, different online virtual Indigenous um, filmmaking film festivals and watching the films, reaching out to some of the curators, some of the directors uh, to see, you know, how, uh, how how likely it is that these will be accessible in a, in a broad way, because that's also important when you're teaching. You have to be able to access these films. And then she's been very, very consciously looking at that and making sure that we have a, a wide and diverse um, uh spectrum of, of different uh, indigenous filmmakers and filmmaking from different regions. So that's where we've been this past year. Um, we also have started to embed where possible access to these films. So one thing we noticed uh, with, with um, the project is that there was a correlation between short films and uh, in both indigenous representation and filmmaking, but also Afro-descendant media makers. And again, a lot of this I attribute to you and the and the really great work you're doing uh, and the book that you that recently came out about visualing Black lives because your work is so important to 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 as a reminder that uh, that who's behind the camera is part of the gaze, right? And part of what the the, um, the production itself is trying to say about historically marginalized communities, especially in Latin America. Um, so that's also a place that we've been trying to think about, can we, you know, if these films, especially short films are available, how can we make sure that people are watching them? And part of that is to embed either a link directly to say their Vimeo site or their YouTube site uh, so that it's easily accessible. And as a teaching resource, I found short films uh, are very impactful because many of my students have admitted to me that they'll watch these like largo metrajes, these 99 minute films on like two plus speed just so they can get through it quicker, which is not ideal. Um, but if you're giving them a 15 to 20 minute corto, they may be more apt to actually watch that as it was created at the regular speed. So pedagogically, that also uh, has been helpful. That's interesting. The whole the speed of watching the film. I've never, I've never I'm heard guilty of it too. No, and I, I'm sure my students have done it too. They just have. I've never. They've never said that. And that's so. That's like some insight into <laughs> including uh, film in the classes and what could happen. So that's that's fascinating, actually. Um, so I wanted to ask uh, about your collaborations with the project. I think you've you've kind of talked about your collaborations or how you involve students with the project, but um, and you can you can talk more about that too. But I wondered about the editorial board that you have uh, advising the project, and um, as I. Uh, I, I'm, I guess I'm on the editorial board, so maybe I should say that. But I wondered, uh, you know, how you involve these different groups and people, if you could say how you how you do that um, with the project. Sure. Yeah, th- that's been the one of the most um, rich, richest uh, aspects of this project is getting to work with colleagues in a in a collaborative way, in a in a non-competitive way, uh, where it really feels like everybody's bringing something different to the table and we're learning from one another, uh, something that I think in academia, you know, we could use more of. Um, so basically, yes, and, and I'm super excited that you're on the editorial board. Uh, it's been, you've been really, really 
um, crucial to expanding our focus into Brazil. Also, your expertise in Portuguese, which I don't have, and and our the, the other board members don't have either, has been important linguistically to make sure that we're being inclusive with the cinema because Brazil's a powerhouse, right? Brazil is a powerhouse in uh, Latin American cinema, and to to be able to include it with somebody that has expertise like you is has been fantastic. Um, so basically, you know, the editorial board. Is, it, is what I like to think of as a, a kind of an advisory board. Uh, we meet twice a year to talk about uh, what what we've accomplished. Uh, we've brainstormed new initiatives. We we check in about, for example, we recently changed um, the heading for the thematic modules uh, for the indigenous and indigenous cinemas, which previously uh, was indigenous representation. So making sure that we're checking in uh, on the accuracy of these terms and that they're also readable to people who are in academia but not, might not be experts in a particular subfield because we want to make sure that someone who comes to the site for teaching purposes is also going to not find obstacles to to understanding what kind of material is available. Um, and then also to networking. I think networking is one of the invisible um, mechanisms in academia that can be both uh, problematic but also very helpful. Uh, I think that uh, it's it's really important to uh, recognize that a lot of the things that happen in academia are through who you know and who you reach out to. Um, so for me, uh, with the editorial board, having people on the board who have different networks of colleagues uh, and even disciplines. So, right, you're coming out of anthropology. I have colleagues who, like me, are in language departments um, and then other colleagues who are in more, say, cultural studies environments. That is really important because you know people that I don't, vice versa. And when we're talking about especially the syllabus and building that collection, I would say a hundred percent, a hundred percent of those syllabi have come in because of a contact from somebody through the editorial board. Um, because faculty, for whatever reason, are, are reticent to share these materials. Um, and that, that's been a challenge, no question. Uh, so having the editorial board is so important, uh, just in terms of somebody feeling uh, confident that the material is going to be, you know, uh, respected and, and uh, you know, and used, uh, you know, in a way that respects um, their, their, their teaching approach or whatever the case might be. Um, so, yeah, so that's been, that's been really phenomenal. And it's just, it just feels to me like a space that uh, is a safe place to share ideas and be collaborative. Um, and yeah, and I would love to know what your thoughts are, if you can, I mean, it's your podcast, but uh, what your what your experience has been like on the board uh, and, and kind of what, how you see yourself uh, in the mix. Yeah, my, my experience with the board has really been great. I've really enjoyed it. Um, I was just going to say that as, as you were um, saying, uh, kind of talking about my, my participation with the board, um, I was going to, you know, affirm that and say, I, I myself have really enjoyed working with the, the people, um, on the board. I think that it's for me brought me into these different spheres of, um, Latin American film. And I, I should say too, like just working with people, with the people is just a lovely experience. Um, everyone is so nice and, and really committed 
to Latin American cinema. Um, and everyone comes from like a different area. So I get to see different aspects of cinema, like Cuban cinema and, and see the kind of work that people are doing. Um, and then, as you said too, it's, it's just so interesting how film straddles so many different areas of research, like, as you said, like anthropology, but literature, film studies, media and communication, um, you know, you just get all of these different, you know, perspectives. And, and I think also it's been great to, um, present as a, you know, as a collective, like at Latin American studies association and to visit other people's classes. I think it's really helped to amplify this idea of community and, uh, you know, community around, a particular topic of Latin American film. So I've just, I've just found it to be fantastic. Um, I've really enjoyed it. So, um, so I wanted to, I guess, end with this question about your thoughts on digital humanities um, and or cinema and media. You've been talking about that across the course of the, um, of course, across the course of the interview um, about digital humanities. And like you just mentioned, one of the challenges is that di- digital humanities is, is never finished. You know, you, you always have to have to be updating it, um, things like that. And so I wondered um, how you see yourself and Synagogia in the space of digital humanities. And um, if you want to share any thoughts about, you know, where you think digital humanities is going or what you find exciting in digital humanities um, and or cinema and media studies, um, that would be great if you could share that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, interestingly, uh, uh, Latin American film studies and digital humanities as, as distinct academic fields or areas have both kind of come up at the same time over the past 20, 30 years. And, um, the way that people talk about digital humanities as interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary and kind of blurring the boundaries of, of research and teaching is exactly the way that people describe Latin American film studies. Um, and so there's this there's this component to Latin American film studies that's that's multidisciplinary, multilingual multicultural, regionally diverse um, that that mirrors but also helps, challenge uh, some of the some of the things that digital humanities has been grappling with as a global enterprise. So for example, um, there's been a lot of um, criticism uh, around digital humanities as being very uh, English centric and Anglo centric. And there's a lot of, you know, there's, there's kind of a sense of that's the dominant language and the dominant way of doing business in, in DH is, uh, you know, very particular. Um, and, so, so my hope with this particular project is that it's a way to to diversify and challenge that ecosystem of digital humanities by providing um, a, a project that is both bilingual but multicultural and interdisciplinary, and not from the global north in in the terms of the subject matter that's being presented. There's a you know a tiny little bit there of resistance to um, perhaps the the majority DH ecosystem uh, that I think is important. At the same time. What, what I found really interesting is that while um, the Global North houses many of the physical um, digital humanities centers, if you look at 
the global south and other parts of the world, there are really so many interesting and vibrant DH initiatives happening, right? So it's not like they're not there. Uh, it's just that the funding, right, and the, and the kind of physical spaces of where these things are getting developed at perhaps a more rapid pace is in the global north. And so I always like to point out that, you know, the Cinematecas, for example, from Argentina, from Brazil, from Chile, Cuba, Mexico, those are all open access digital humanities projects that are uh, in non-English languages um, and that have been developed in the region. There are some also some excellent uh, peer-reviewed um, online access uh, journals. I can think of a couple uh, out of Argentina, um, Imagofagia, for example. Um, and uh, other projects, right? That that um, that also center different diverse voices as well. I think in Brazil, Afroflix. I don't know if they're still. It's still um, online, but that was a medium pl- a medium platform that was like focused on content that had at least one black person in the on the film production side of things. Uh, and I liked, I particularly liked the name Afroflix because it was a play on Netflix. Um, so there are a lot of things going on in in Latin America uh, that that again counter this this uh, discourse that DH is just in the global north or that somehow that's only where things are happening. Um, and also too, at the same time, I should recognize that you know this project is what I would consider inhabiting a, a hybrid space because it's hosted at a very small academic institution in the Northeast region of the United States. Um, And all of our editorial board members currently, while they're diverse in terms of their linguistic abilities and where they're coming from, we all teach at higher institutions in uh, the U.S. Um, And while the project is bilingual, uh, you know, and our content focuses on the global South, uh, we are working in an ecosystem that is U.S., U.S. centered, um, so that would be one place that I can see that for me is exciting to think about. Like, how can we get synagogia beyond, you know, and more into the space of DH in the in Latin America itself? Um, and that's again a place for for growth and for opportunity uh, moving into the future. Great. So we will look out for those, um, for the constant, uh, we'll, we'll look at the site and then we'll also look out for the constant, you know, changes and, and, uh, updates that the site will inevitably, um, include as we go along. So thank you so much. Um, I've been speaking with Dr. Bridget Franco, founder and organizer of the Synagogia website. Um, once again, you can find it at synagogia.umika.net. And again, I'll put that in the show notes. Um, thank you so much, uh, Bridget, for organizing and coordinating this website, this incredible resource. And thank you so much for sharing it with us on the podcast. You're welcome. Thanks so much, Reagan, for your work too. <laughs>